Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. So if you guys would bow your heads with me, let's pray once more. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your word. Um, And we uh, always need help in understanding uh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom of grace that you have given us in your scripture. Lord, uh, what an astounding truth that we could be Christian for Fifty years, sixty years, and we could read this book every year. We're coming to the end of a season of Bible reading plans, and there are some of us who have read through all of the Bible in a year, and never will we exhaust what you've given us in here. But your Holy Spirit, always living and abiding, cutting us, piercing us, exposing new wounds which the gospel gets to heal, and new joys which the Christian gets to experience. So we're grateful for that this morning as we look at Proverbs six. We pray this in your name, amen. So as Stephen just read for you guys, we are back in the book of Proverbs where we're looking at the theme of God's wisdom. And wisdom is not defined in scripture as simply street smarts or mere intelligence. We've been kind of using a definition for wisdom that wisdom biblically is learning to see our world through God's eyes. And ultimately, the place where we do that the most clearly is when we see that God has sent Jesus to take away our sins, that God has sent Jesus to show us our foolishness and God's goodness. And if we respond to that piece of wisdom, then the whole world gets opened up for us to see things differently. And a lot of what's going on in Proverbs is Solomon in these first nine chapters as a father to us as his metaphorical children by expanding the realm of wisdom by showing us all the things that wisdom influences, and it's more than you could ever think of. I have a friend who works for Microsoft, and when you think of Microsoft, when I think of Microsoft, you think of kind of their token products, Microsoft Office, Windows, Xbox. But the truth is, the bulk of Microsoft's business are things that don't look like they belong to Microsoft at all. They're patents that are sold off to other uh, technology groups that then become the interface we use on thousands of products every day, not knowing that it's just Microsoft that's there. And many of us think that the gospel would obviously shape our lives in big areas. Maybe if you've been talking about Christianity with a neighbor or coworker, they think that there's all of life, and then there's the gospel, and it shapes how you think of eternal salvation or how you relate to God, big token sins we don't do, like sexual sin, or gambling, but it's also something that shapes the small details of our life. And I think that's why this text is placed where it is, because this text, Proverbs 6, 1 through 19, is sandwiched between two larger portions of teaching on big, scandalous sins, and there's this weird break in between where it seems like it doesn't belong. But I think this is intentional by Solomon here to show us that God cares about these big things. It is not wrong to think in massive, big categories when it comes to God's wisdom. But God's wisdom also matters in the small things. Because the gospel is bigger than we can ever imagine, the influence of the gospel is bigger than we can ever imagine. So what we're gonna look at today, our big picture is this, is that God's wisdom teaches us what to do to find peace and what to avoid to find life. So it's going to teach us to do something, to find peace, and it's going to teach us to avoid something, to find life. And we're going to see it, if you're in your Bible, there are four four kind of paragraphs in Proverbs 6, 1 through 19. The first two are kind of thematically grouped, and the second two are grouped together. In verses 1 through 11, we're going to see a guide for doing what is good. As a good father, he's going to give us a guide to do what's right. And then in verses 12 through 19, we're going to see a warning against doing what is not good. And so we're going to look at our first point today, a guide for doing what is good. This is going to be in verses 1 through uh, 10, through 11. And what you're going to see here is both of these paragraphs deal with avoiding some sort of material disaster, be it financial or otherwise. 
And what's going to happen in verses 1 through 5, Solomon's going to give a very specific example, very detailed. And then in verses 6 through 11, he's going to kind of zoom that lens out a little bit to give a more general principle on how we view things like our money, our provision, and our work. And this is really important because what we saw in Proverbs chapter 5 says, who you kiss reveals what you believe about God. Your romantic life reveals thoughts you have on God. And what we're going to see today is that what you believe about money and what you believe about work or even the purpose of your life also reveals what you believe about God. In other words, your wallet and your worksheet are windows into your theology. And maybe you're someone in here who has no theology and you think, I don't believe in a God. But the truth is, how you view those things actually show what you think is a God and the control it has over your life. And in first... What we want to do is we're going to see a warning to do what is good. And this warning, this guide has to do with specific things of pledges and securities in terms of finances. So let me read for you first and then we'll dive into this. So this is verses 1 through 5. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the fowler, like a bird, or excuse me, from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Now what's going on in this text? What does it mean to us? Earlier on in this week, I got to this text, and I was like, I don't really know what to do with this. And yet, interestingly enough, God's word is so good, I used this text in at least four specific conversations of practical issues in my life the remainder of this week. And so it's so important for us to understand what's going on here in this passage, but to do so, we need to understand the broader context of how loans and finances were viewed in ancient Israel, and God's physical kingdom that was in place when this was written. Well, just like how with our own economy at the center is this federal bank that kind of dictates uh, rates and gives advice for loans and for lenders, something similar to that existed in Scripture. God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he gives them what we see in the Old Testament, his law. And his law was meant to cause this society, this people, this kingdom to flourish as people saved by grace. But included in that law is not just who you worship or how you worship, but it includes the nuances of your life, including how God's people are to view finances and lending and borrowing. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, we were in Deuteronomy a couple years ago, we read that the Israelites were able and actually generously encouraged to loan money to their Israelite brothers and sisters if they had a need. They're encouraged to meet the needs of those who are around them by offering a loan. But they weren't allowed to, char- allowed to charge interest on that loan if that loan was given to a fellow Israelite. But included in this loan giving was also, not only is it great to get a no interest loan, but was included in the rhythm of the Jewish calendar was something called the sabbatical year that God gave them as a symbol of God who releases his own people from bondage as he did in Egypt, every seven years, all debts in Israel, whether you had that debt for 10 years or for 10 days, it was forgiven. Everyone's slate went back to zero. All of the student loans would have been forgiven every seven years. Your mortgage forgiven after seven years, complete and total reset. And why is this important? Because it shows us two things. One, that loaning and lending was not prohibited in God's kingdom. But the primary principle which undergirded all of the financial law was that it was God's ideal that his kingdom people experience freedom from the bondage of money. There might be times where you might need to be in debt. And you might need someone to help you, but as God's ideal in his perfect kingdom would be that you would not be controlled by money. 
but you would have freedom from it. Not to say you're to live lavishly and opulently, but that your life was free from being bound by money. And so specifically in our text today, it's getting even more narrow than Deuteronomy 15. And the father here is warning against co-signing on a loan in a potentially unwise situation. That's really the language he's using here. You're putting up security. You're putting up a pledge for a neighbor you might know or a stranger you don't know. So think of it this way. You have a buddy who comes to you and he's trying to start a business or a car. And he says, here's the deal. The bank won't give me this loan until I can either secure another $3,000 or you co-sign on this loan with me so that if I don't make a payment, they know someone else will. And what that means is whether it's in that initial donation or if it's in that ongoing co-signing, your finances are tied to this individual. If they are unable to pay it back, you incur a loss. You're the one who has to go and be the first kind of replacement on whatever debt is being collected. And this kind of thing happens naturally in certain places. If you are applying for student loans, oftentimes your parents have to co-sign or an auto loan for a, a kid who's still growing up in the household. Your parents co-sign on that loan. And that's not necessarily what the father is thinking about here, though his thoughts do influence that. He is thinking that this situation that he's talking about is not the best case scenario. And we know that because he is assuming that we've been caught. We've been entrapped. We've spoken too quickly. And this means one of potentially two things could have gone wrong. First, this individual is probably an individual that wisdom would say you shouldn't tie your finances to them. There's a reason the bank isn't lending money to this guy. He hasn't been responsible. He hasn't been wise. And so it probably would have been wise for you to also say, this isn't going to honor God. This isn't going to help him. It's not going to honor my community. Or secondly, maybe you know this individual has a track record of being unwise with money, has had a rough go in life, and you say, I want to help them. I genuinely want to give this person an opportunity to get back on their feet. And so you give the, that $3,000 to be generous, but the truth is perhaps you're in a financial situation where you can't afford to be generous with that $3,000. It's one thing to give that money knowing that if they can't pay it back, that's okay. It's another thing to give that money to be generous without having the capacity to be generous. Knowing that if you don't get that $3,000 back, if you can't receive that, then you are in financial ruin and your own family is strapped and now you have compounded this economic problem inside of your community. God wants us to be generous and that is very clear in scripture. We're gonna talk a lot about finances in Proverbs, but where we are limited in our generosity and even where we are able in our generosity, God is calling us to be wise and prudent. And so what happens here? You, he, this individual has made a poor financial decision to loan, to pledge to somebody else, and now he's trapped in his words. What does he want you to do? Well, we see this in verse three. Go, plead with your neighbor. Make haste. Literally in Hebrew, it says, humble yourself. Go to him and admit your mistake. How urgent is it? Don't sleep on it. Lose sleep over this to go and make it right, to go talk to this individual. Now, this is, again, if we're just looking at this, this is kind of a weird thing. We're coming out of a text talking about the dangers of adultery. We're going into a text talking about the dangers of sexual sin. And here, he's talking about the immensely practical issue of making a bad loan. But there's something wonderful in here, isn't there? First... God cares about all of the money he's given to you. Every penny we have is from God. And everything we do, whether it's being generous towards God or generous towards others, God cares about it. God has a view of what we should do with our money, and he actually has a right over it. We often think when it comes to finances, will the bank approve of this? But what Proverbs is saying here is we should ask ourselves, will God approve of this? Is this honoring God? Is this serving my community? But secondly, beyond God caring about your money, God cares deeply about you. 
God knows that we are silly, foolish, and sinful people. And sometimes, even for the best of reasons, we will make unwise decisions. And God cares about that. And he actually, in the midst of that pain and that confusing situation, God wants to help you by giving you this advice. And if you've ever been in a situation close to what is being described here in Proverbs, which I think many of us have, whether it's our finances or just with giving of our word in general, you know we need help. Because you know that when you've given your word to someone and it goes wrong, there's no one to kick except for yourself. And you can feel so alone because this problem is yours and yours alone. You said something foolish, you weren't thoughtful, and now you have this sticky situation on your hands. And you know that you have two choices in that moment. You can either endure a season of ruin by actually pledging, securing, or paying out what you've promised, or what stands before you is the great humility of going to somebody else and asking, even begging, to be released from that. See, I know men who, on a weekend of texting or having a phone call with old college buddies, have pledged to go to this wonderful meetup with their college friends, and then four months go by and the date is coming close, and they realize that for him to do that is going to come at immense cost to his family and to his wife. And they've had to do the hard work of calling these people to whom he's pledged his participation in this weekend, maybe even his portion of the hotel room, and say, guys, I can't do it. I've sat with couples in pre-marriage, and they've made a pledge to marry the other person. They put down deposits. They've sent out invites. And I had to say to them, I don't think this is wise. <laughs> I don't think you should have made this pledge. And in moments like that, there is messy, humiliating, and I say that word as it's connected to humble in this text, work to be done. Work of going to vendors, rescinding invitations, awkward holiday meals to tell others that this marriage was not what was best. But this is why we need God's help. Because first, in looking at this text, we might learn that our words matter and that we ought not simply pledge things because we have the ability, but we should pledge things in order that it glorifies God that our words are connected to our worship. But secondly, what God is giving us here, if we've made a bad pledge, is the experience of a clear conscience before God. To do what God's commanding you here, to humble yourself, to go, to not lose sleep, to knock on a door at two in the morning, is to face vulnerable and potentially messy situations. And yet, when you do that, when you have stuck your own foot in your mouth, God is there with you. He is on your side. To obey this text means there might be real tension, real angry words, real heated conversations between you and another. But in that moment, you have peace with God because you are obeying him. You are honoring him. And it's the peace you have with God, not the peace you share with anyone else in this world, that actually brings us comfort in discomforting times. It is peace we have with God, being on the same page as the one who wove his wisdom into this world, that gives us the security to stand when things are hard. A similar theme to this is raised in Job chapter 17. And in Job, he's in a circumstance where it seems all of his friends have turned against him. There's been immense calamity in his own household. And look at what he pleads to God. In Job 17, verse 3, he's speaking to God. He says, Lord, lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? He says, God, no one in this world has my back. There is no security for me financially or relationally or economically that I can find. Will you put up a pledge for me? Will you stand behind me and guarantee me by your value that I'll make it, that I will be okay? And in the gospel, 
God pledges his security to each and every person who comes to him through Jesus Christ. That God stands behind us in the well of his immense mercy, providing us peace in tumultuous times. In fact, look at how the author of Hebrews speaks, as Christ, speaks of Christ in this financial language. In Hebrews 7, 22, he says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a new covenant. In other words, he is the financial benefactor to the covenant of grace we have with God. You had a debt of sin, and Christ came and said, draw from it. Here is my pledge. Here is my security. In the gospel, we hook our nasty trailer debt of sin to the perfect son of God who is willing. Do you understand that? Willing to put his blood on the line for your debt. Joyfully. Because he wants to obey his father and he wants to love his brothers. So when the unwise decisions arise on a temporary level and we are stressed and anxious and trapped, we obediently respond by trusting that being on this side with Jesus' grace is better than on being any other side because one person can pay our debts and the others can't. There's only one debt in this world which will define you and it is the debt you owe to God. But when Christ forgives that, it shapes how we respond when we have pledged or promised something that seems we might not be able to handle. Here's how good God, I don't know how to stress this more, of how deeply God cares about you to give us this advice which seems so random. If you've never been in a situation like this, this just means God loves you more than you can ever imagine. Because even if you step in this situation down the road, God says, here I am. Here I am to help you. Here I am to provide you wisdom. And in the midst of that anxiety, he gives you something to do that really matters. He gives you the hope of obedience. And what I love on this text is it actually provides clarity on our emotions, doesn't it? Because what's assumed here, and what you'll actually see in the first three paragraphs of uh, our text today, all of them end with this sort of looming anxiety of something being taken, of something being destroyed, of something being demanded from you. And I imagine if you've been in a circumstance like this, whether you've pledged finances or your personal presence, that when you realize you can't actually pay that, you have a real anxiety. And what's funny is God doesn't come to us in our mess and say, don't be anxious, dummy. In fact, he confirms your emotions. He says, yeah, you're in the hand of a hunter. You've fallen in the trap of your neighbor. You should be anxious. But here's what you can do to be restored. Here's how you could take that anxiety and trust that Jesus is bigger and better and more wonderful than all of the problems you have. You see, sometimes anxiety is wrong when it leads us to sinful worry or to act like we are God. But other times when we are anxious, it is actually a gift from God that we would stop and consider that perhaps God is calling us to obey in a different way. Perhaps God actually has something to help us in our situation. We would just stop and consider that God has a solution to the wrong that we are living in. And immediately below this text, the Father presents another circumstance that could produce anxiety, that of poverty and want. But again, he shows us that even in this, if you were to obey, if you were to not stay static, but to obey, you might find peace. And this is the second way we're guided into what is good, and this is avoid the danger of sloth. Not only should you be wise about your pledge, but you should be wise to not be considered a sloth. Look with me at Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard, and consider her ways. Be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So here the father begins to warn. Again, he's looking out. He's not saying, you, my son, are the sloth. He's now warning the son of the sloth so that you might not be him. 
And I love how one translation puts it, maybe your translation says sluggard. Another one says lazy bones, which is my favorite. And who is Mr. Lazy Bones here? Well, if the previous warning was to a son who was uh, willing to satisfy and prioritize the comfort of another, this neighbor or stranger, over and above wisdom, then the sluggard is the person who prioritizes his own comfort over and above wisdom. And I think the Bible actually shows us two paradoxes of what the sloth could look like. Here in Proverbs 6, and what the immediate text is going to deal with, is the person who thinks that peace and uh, that peace comes by distraction, by withdrawal, by the folding of a hands, a little slumber, a little rest, never anything in excess. But most of us, especially in our 21st century world, don't necessarily feel like a sluggard in this term. We're not just at home napping all day. But this is what I love in the New Testament. There's another category for the person who Paul calls is idle. And look at how he describes this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So what we see here is we just want to broaden this definition of who is the sloth. The sloth can be the person who sits at home and does nothing. But the sloth can also be someone who, by being tied to their phone and the pace of their life, is doing everything while at the same time accomplishing nothing. Busy, but not busy at work. Busy bodies. In other words, both the couch and the calendar can distract us from what God has called us to do. And help us diagnose our own hearts. He calls us to look at the ant. More specifically, he calls us to consider it, which is such a wonderful word, to consider it, to think, to examine, to weigh. You see, the lazy person can't ignore it, and the frantic busybody can't just glance at it. He's saying, stop, look at the ant. Isn't that really humbling when we feel like we've got better things to do? Look at the ant. Have you ever stopped to examine an ant pile? The ants are always working. There's a flurry of ants going around, and what you don't see is you don't see all these ants working in the same direction, and then over here is just a a, a squad of ants busy chatting and plotting what they're going to do tomorrow. You don't see an ant over here hanging out, chomping on his Dorito, while everyone else is working. In fact, have you ever seen an ant, do ants sit? Do I say sitting still? Standing still? Anting still? I haven't. When I see an ant, the only time it's anting still is when you're trying to burn it with a thingamagoob. Ants are always working. Why? Because that's how God created it. Here Solomon appeals to this creative order. God's wisdom that we have seen like fabric in a rug is woven into our life. The ant has no commander to tell him to do it. He has no boss checking his time card. He does it because it's what he was created to do. And now he turns to Mr. Lazybones and he says, are you without a counselor? Are you without an excuse? And the rhetorical answer is no. And how do you know that? Because here God is counseling you. Here he is commanding you. Here he is placing you under his authority to see two things. One, that you are made in the image of a creative and working God. And our ability to work reflects that. But also in our task as image bearers is wrapped up a goal for our existence that shapes the way we work. Do you know that work is part of God's perfect plan for us? In Genesis 1, we read of this perfect creation, which God says is good seven times. Not only is good a good word, but in Hebrew literature, seven meant perfection. It is just the goodest good of the goodest. You can look it up. And in this good and perfect world, there's an implied task. In this world where there is just phenomenal joy everywhere. Look at what is implied in the creation of man 
in Genesis 2, verses 5 through 8. When no brush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. So why did God make the man? There's all sorts of reasons we see in scripture. But as it pertains to our text today, it was to do what? It was to work the ground. There was no one to work the ground, so God made man and put him in a garden. And this sounds really lame if we don't understand what's going on here. The work that Adam and Eve were commanded to partner together for was to expand this beautiful garden. But unlike the garden you have in your house, which might provide you some grocery foods, some tomatoes or some cucumbers, this garden didn't just contain material goods. This garden is where God dwelt personally and intimately with his humanity. This is where there was no sin, there was no sickness, there was no relational distress, there was no racism, there was no COVID, there were no debts. It was just the greatest neighborhood in the whole world. And they were to build it, to expand it, so that they could invite others into it. So that more and more people could experience how good it was to live with this God. But then in Genesis 3, sin entered into the world and they refused their task. And in that moment, the work they had wasn't removed. It was just complicated. The ground they were to till was no longer soft and fertile. It was rocky and hard and it produced thorns. You see, if you ever have had a bad day at work, that's a reminder that sin is worse. <laughs> work is hard Work is difficult, and work sometimes is a burden. And it should remind us that work wasn't meant to be that way. It is that way because sin is pervasive in our lives, and that shows us how wonderful Jesus is to promise us a world where not only is sin taken care of in our heart, but sin is taken care of in all of our work. But work was part of God's good plan for us. And just as the ant was made to provide and by doing that, obeying God, so too are you called to work and glorify God. And it's here, it's almost in verse nine that God is getting a stick and he's coming to the sluggard and he's saying, do something. How long will you lie there? When will you get up? Even the ant recognizes that he was made for a purpose. How much more to be created in the image of God and by the blood of Christ called to a life of redemption for him. So what is that purpose? When does work become meaningful for you? When your work begins to look like garden work. When it begins to glorify God and serve other people. In Genesis, Adam and Eve were called to expand the garden. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are called to expand a kingdom. Not by our power, but by the power of God in the gospel. To go forth and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This commission to glorify God and love others is the commission behind your work, wherever that is. Whether you work for the church, or whether you work at Arby's, this is what you're called to do. This is why Paul can so boldly say in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily, work with emotion, work with worship because you are working for the Lord and not for men. You see, the Protestant work ethic is not some esoteric ideology of providing. The Protestant work ethic is rooted in worship of God, of saying God is worthy of all that I am and you can get in on this too. You can come and see you can come and be loved. You can come and have this freedom. And here we see the hope of this freedom. 
We see the wonderful peace that only God can bring. Because Mr. Lazybones, when God says, hey, when are you going to work? He says, just a little slumber, just a little rest, just a little folding of hands. Now, why do we do that? Don't we often run to sloth, whether it's in busyness or whether it's in lounging? Because we actually think that for that time we're busy or that time we're resting, we can have peace. The world can be burning, but if I could just have this vice and settle in my sloth, then I'll have relief. Just for a moment. How many of you had that on Thanksgiving where you said, if I could just make it to the post-Thanksgiving nap and the kids are down and I could close my eyes, then I'll have peace. But did you notice what actually happens in this text? You think that this kind of lifestyle will bring you peace, but poverty will sneak up on you like a robber in the night. Lack and want will come up out of nowhere like an armed man. You think that in distracting yourself from the purpose for which God has created you, that you will find identity, but this life will rob it all from you and leave you empty. But this is the beauty of God's word to us and how it reshapes our work. The gospel saves us from work and the gospel saves us for work. We rest from work because the gospel reminds us we cannot earn our own standing before God. By our own work, we can never get what we want from the world, nor can we get what we want from God. But faith in Jesus recognizes that Jesus is the one who worked perfectly and harder than anyone else. It was Jesus who did the hard work of fulfilling God's righteousness. And in a wonderful miracle, to believe in Jesus is to have his work, his rich, abounding work, be counted to you. His time card becomes your time card. His labor becomes your labor. His rest becomes your rest. To know that Christ has done the work we could never do of earning the favor of God, which our sins broke. But now if we are resting from our work, we actually have the privilege to rest for our work. And this is part of why the church gathers on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, so that we would come here and we might be working six days, five days outside of this, whatever your work week is, and we come here and we rest and we pause and we orient our eyes on Christ and we encourage one another. Why? So that when Monday comes, we could pour ourselves out for another work week, joyful and eager about what God might accomplish for his glory in your labors. We rest from work and we rest for work, which means all of our life gets wrapped in this wonderful burrito of grace where we cannot escape God's goodness. Every aspect of our life reminds us of what Christ has done to liberate us. It causes us to do what's good. And here in Proverbs 6, he shows us what it looks like to do good and to experience peace. But here in verse 12, the narrative shifts a little. The previous verses caution us against inactivity, right? Don't delay in going to this individual. Don't sit as a sloth and fold your hands and nap. But what's going to happen in verses 12 through 19 is we're going to see a flurry of dangerous and harmful activities. This is our second point this morning. A warning against doing what is not good. And here I want you to notice, so here's studying the Bible, we see the words of, of kind of urging and pleading for action in verses 1 through 11. But now listen to the active words that are here in verses 12 through 19. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly, and in a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord above his brothers. And so here's the paradox behind the first 19 verses of Proverbs 6. It may seem when you look out at your life that you are doing nothing. It may seem that you are content to 
let bygones be bygones with false pledges, to sit comfortably in doing what you're doing while still pleasing God. But the truth is, we're never doing nothing. If we are not active in obeying God towards what is good, then you are active in pursuing what is not. Your hands may be inactive, but your heart never is. Your feet might be static in the easy chair, but that doesn't stop your feet from fleeing to sin. And here the Father warns us against the worthless man. If you want to be warned about poverty, if you want to be warned about pledges, then be warned of the worthless man. For the person who is worse off than being financially bankrupt is here the one who is spiritually bankrupt. And we see God's heart towards this wicked man in verses 16 through 19, but we see kind of the anatomy of the wicked man in verses 12 through 15. And did you notice how the whole body of this man is active? He's not passive. He's not sitting back. He's not at a loss for what to do. His mouth is crooked. His eyes are deceitful. His head is strategically placed. His, or his feet are strategically placed. His fingers identify the object of scorn. His perverted heart cannot do anything but scheme evil. He constantly sows disruptive discord wherever he goes. This is the head, shoulders, knees, and toes song of the morally debased. Everything is wrong. And when we see it described this way, we should know we don't want this, Right? There are lots of kids sitting in here, maybe watching at home. When they read this and you say, is this good? They will say, no, it's not. And yet the appeal behind this, if we really think about it, is in contrast to this son who has this father barking orders at him. Here is a man who gets to do exactly what he wants with every bit of his body. There is no subjugation to authority. There is no caving to the will of the other. Unlike the ant or the wise man, this man heeds no instruction. He is out for himself. And what our world shows us is that the wicked often prosper. In fact, Solomon, the man who wrote this portion of Proverbs, also wrote a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes, which answers the question, why do the wicked prosper? And the righteous scarcely endure. See, we see whatever media you consume, maybe even in your own neighborhood or job, movies, Music videos, magazines, all who show people who by biblical standards we would say this is the fool. And yet we see what they have. And while we don't want to be wicked, we see that wickedness is an okay means if that's the end. We get to see their wealth, their rest, their relationships, and we begin to say, well, I could, just as a little sleep, a little slumber here and there, we could say, oh, look, a little bit of discord here is fine if it leverages things over here. A little bit of devious talk is fine if it's maintained in order everywhere else. A little bit of sin here for gain there. And to hear this warning of the Father and to think otherwise is to fall into the error of sin and haughty eyes, arrogant eyes, do you realize when we have prideful eyes, it distorts wisdom. We no longer see God or see the world through God's eyes. When we see the world through our eyes, we fail to see reality. The late British pastor, J.C. Ryle, says this of pride. He says, pride makes us content with ourselves. Think we're good enough as we are. Keeps us from taking advice. Refuse the gospel of Christ. Pride turns everyone to his own way. Pride seduces our eyes, but this is why God's grace in his word tries to give us new eyes and yells into deaf ears. And Solomon gives us two dangers here, saying, wake up and see what's wrong. First, living life in this way, living life as this wicked, worthless man destroys a gospel community. You see the lies, the false witnesses, the discord that typify this man's community. And I don't think, we talked about this a little bit last week in Colossians chapter three, I don't think it is possible to overstate how important God considers your contributions to this body. We cannot understand how seriously God loves Christians who encourage Christians to worship God and love others and how God detests those 
who are comfortable sowing discord. God cares about our contributions to his redeemed people. And sin is always corporate. Verses 16 through 19 begin with this kind of unique phrase. He says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven things which are an abomination to him. And what he's saying there is not two lists. It's kind of this like, it's not just this bad, it's this bad. (laughs) It's how the Hebrew poets wrote. Not just six things bad, seven things bad. And those lists typically end and build towards the last, uh, the last sentence of it. That is what the whole flow is bringing towards. That's the emphatic statement they're making. making. What is it that God hates? What is it that is an abomination to him? Look at the last verse. The one who sows discord among his brothers. We cannot overthink this. If we are not busy with the activity of righteousness and obeying God, then you will by nature become busy with the duty of discord and you will endanger your brothers and sisters in Christ. Misery loves company and so does sin. And we will prey on others to feel good about ourselves. But sin is not only harmful to your brothers and sisters, sin is harmful for you. This is the second reason. Sin kills the gospel community but sin will also kill you. The wicked think they're living their best life now, but look at verse 15. Therefore, calamity will come upon him, that's the worthless man, suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. That's pretty devastating. For the God who offers grace to say, there will come a point in your life where you will be broken beyond healing. But why is that? Look at the force that stands behind this judgment. The very next verse, verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Why is sin punished? Because God hates it. There's a force to this language that's lost on us in English and it comes where it says this is an abomination to him. That pronoun him is the Hebrew word nefesh which in other places is the same word for breath or soul. God hates these things from the bottom of his soul. Why? Because God is so good, so wonderful, so pure, that these things are so out of place and detestable to him. He loathes them. And this is where we see the weight of our sin and the problem of our humanity. Because how many of us look at that list, and while none of us will probably claim 100% pass, we certainly will at least find one to claim as our own. We all find something we're guilty of. We have all earned the displeasure of God and we've worked hard to earn it. And it would seem that the implied solution to this is to just become busy with the work of righteousness. But here, let's not miss what Solomon has been saying. Remember back in chapter four when he began to kind of this more intentional time of teaching with us? Look at what he says in chapter four, verses 20 through 22. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my saying. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all of their flesh. You see, the problem with sin is not just that we can stop doing it. You don't need a new appendage, you need a new body, you need a new flesh. You need to be born again. And this is the wonderful good news of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, for to be in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. You see, Jesus doesn't just give us this philosophical new perception on life, though he does. Jesus fundamentally gives us a new body from which to work. 
He takes away members that practice unrighteousness and he fills us with the Holy Spirit so that we can practice righteousness and glorify God and love others. Our spiritual anatomy is turned from verses 12 through 15 and it is infused with the righteousness of Christ because he took the filth, he took the pain, he took the displeasure, he took the judgment, he took the debt and he gives us himself so that you might become busy with the works of the Lord. So how do you apply this text first and foremost? You must be born again. You can outwork a bad hand. You can't outwork a bad body. And that's what our sin has given us. If you have never turned to Jesus and experienced his pledge for you, I encourage you to do that today. To repent, to be cleansed, to be set free. Don't miss the opportunity to talk to someone. If you don't know what that looks like, talk to me, talk to someone else today. If they have a mask, talk to them. It's a joke, we're all wearing masks. It means you can talk to anybody about it. Because we want you to experience this. But once we are renewed, once we have been born again, then work does start. Now we get to become busy with the task of obedience. Now we become busy not sitting back on our laurels, but working with a new body. Look at how Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Do you hear the wisdom language there? How many times do we run into the word discernment or discretion in Proverbs? Here is God's wisdom in the gospel. You may discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. I imagine that each of us have a different way we apply this text in our lives. Some of us need to go right away after this to lose no sleep, or to, to, to not rest, to not close our eyes, and to go and to repent to God and repent to others of places where we were being inactive, where God's wisdom would have shown us to be actively obedient. Others of us need to go to God or to others and repent of places where we have been active, but not with the things of God. But when we we begin to understand all the places, when that door becomes open, where it's not just the macro things, but the micro instances of our life that God cares for us and has provided Christ for us, we are going to find two things in tension. One, that this is incredibly hard work. That this path, this path of wisdom, is a difficult path that requires effort. But secondly, we will find that God is always good over and above our hardships. We labor only in the strength that Christ provides and Christ has provided abundantly to experience the riches of God and find peace with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you help us to do the hard work of choosing what is good and fleeing from what is wrong. Lord, we thank you that you have taken away our body of bad works in Jesus Christ. You have justified us by declaring us righteous in Jesus. And when you do that, you allow us pause to consider. Not just to consider Christ, but to even consider the ant. That everywhere we look in this world, you have shown that you desire good for us. And that good is in obeying you and in trusting you. In doing the hard work of working for you. Lord, I pray today that from our finances, to our pledges, to our jobs, to our, our impact we have on our community. That we would show the goodness of the God who saves and the wonder of walking in your wisdom. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.